Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're new to Hillside, or if you're just visiting with us this morning, my name's Kevin Krondike, and I'm the worship director here at Hillside. Uh, and as Daniel mentioned earlier, I'm also a seminary student, which means that a couple times a year uh, I trade in my guitar for a pulpit. Uh, but don't worry, it's, it's okay. I've, uh, I've taken my Greek and my Hebrew courses already, and uh, some systematic theology classes, and I even took a class on preaching. Uh, so I should have all the tools necessary to preach this morning. However, I think the best preaching advice I've ever received came from Twitter. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor in New York, and from time to time, he, he tweets little nuggets of wisdom for preachers. And uh, last week, he tweeted, I've never heard a 40-minute sermon that couldn't have been said better in 20. <laughs> so let's see if I can follow his advice this morning. We'll see. Um, if you haven't been with us recently, uh, we've, we're continuing this morning in our summer, summer sermon series uh, on the Lord's Prayer, uh, this prayer that's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Uh, in the last few weeks, uh, we've seen how this prayer can be divided into three parts. The first part, there's, a, there's an opening approach at the beginning, and then there's six petitions or requests in the middle, and a closing at the end. And uh, we've seen some patterns in these six petitions. Maybe uh, you've seen this slide before. The first three uh, requests are all about God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So we start our prayers reminding ourselves that what we need most is God. We reorient our whole world so that we recognize that God is at the center, not us. We worship God's holy name, and we recenter our lives around God's kingdom and his perfect will. We're saying no to our own kingdoms. We're saying no to our own desires, and we're saying yes to God and his kingdom. We're praying, God, make my desires, or make, rather, make your desires be my only desire. So then once we place God at the center, the second set of three requests here are all about us. These, these requests of give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And in these last three requests, we see that there is a, a dimension to these that can be related to time. For instance, praying for our daily bread is related to the present time, what we need today. And praying for forgiveness is related to the past. And praying for deliverance from evil is a prayer for the future. And it's this last request, the one that focuses on the future, is the one that we're going to focus on today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what are we asking when we pray this prayer? Well, first I'd like to suggest that this prayer is not saying that God is the one who tempts us. God is not a mean old man who lives far away up in heaven, who looks down on us and sets traps so that when we fall, he can punish us. Unfortunately, this is how some people view God. They view him as mean. And when we mess up, or he makes a, he, we view him that he makes a bunch of rules that he knows that we can't follow and that he finds joy in punishing us when we mess up. But the image of, that image of God doesn't make much sense when we look at the opening of this prayer that Jesus gave us. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the start of this prayer, our Father in heaven. 
God is our Father. And good fathers don't tempt their children to mess up. Jesus teaches us to start our prayers by calling God our Father. Because he wants us to start our prayers remembering that we are his children, whom he dearly loves. You know, one of the great joys of being a parent is to see your kids uh, grow up and learn new things for the very first time. Uh, To see when they learn how to crawl, or they learn how to walk, or to swim, or ride a bike, all these new firsts. In fact, just this last week, uh, I was with my little six-month-old niece, and she's just on the brink of beginning to learn how to crawl. She uses her arms, her hands, she lifts up her head and her shoulders off the ground, and then she pushes forward with her legs, but then her arms give out, and she lunges forward and smashes her head on the floor. <laughs> Thankfully, the carpet's pretty soft. But I, I, I remember, too, when my boys were first learning to walk. They're so unstable at first. They, they wobble around, and their arms are flailing all over, and they take those first steps. But inevitably, when they learn to crawl or they learn to walk, it involves falling. And as a dad, I'm not upset when they fall. In fact, I pick them up. I hold them close. I wipe away their tears. And I help them try again. My heart for them is to protect them, but I also want to allow them to learn new things as they grow. And I think this is God's heart for his children too. He doesn't find joy in seeing us fall. But he knows that sometimes it's part of growing up. He knows that sometimes we need to make the mistake so that we can learn from it. So when we pray this prayer to lead us not to temptation, we must first understand God's heart for us. He is our Father. We are His beloved children. The Heidelberg Catechism, in fact, tells us that there's three sworn enemies and that they're the ones who are attacking us with evil. Let's look at what this says in the Catechism. The question is, what does the sixth request mean? The sixth request here in the, cat, in the Lord's Prayer. It means that by ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own for even a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. So God's not the one that tempts us to sin, but we do have three enemies. And they never stop attacking us. The first one here is the devil. Let's look together at a few Bible passages that tell us about what the devil is like. The Bible tells us first in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, says that your enemy The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, the scriptures say, Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And one more verse, John 10, verse 10, says, The thief, who's the devil, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says, I come, that you may have life and have it abundantly. 
See, it's clear in Scripture that the devil is real, and it's his mission to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to attack your kids. He wants to cause division in this church and in all churches. He wants to bring basically about as much destruction as he possibly can. He rejoices over war and genocide and child abuse. He delights in disease and disasters and death. And our only hope against him is that Jesus has the power to crush him and stop him at any moment. So when we pray this, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're saying, God, don't let Satan overcome us. Rescue us from the evil that seeks to destroy us. Our second enemy is the world. And when I say here that our enemy is the world, I'm, I, I don't mean that all other nations besides the USA. That's not what I'm talking about here. By world, I mean the secular ideologies or the philosophies, the values and worldviews that are in conflict with the values and desires of God's kingdom. So let's look at what Scripture says here about the world. In John 15, verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Another verse in Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So there's definitely this sense already in Scripture that we have to be aware of the environment in which we live. This environment can be hostile to the gospel. Yet I want to caution us that I don't think this means that we need to run away and hide in the mountains and escape the world and just get out of here as fast as we can. Because God loves the world too. As it says in the famous verse, John 3, verse 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. See, the word here that's used for world in all three of these passages is the same word, which seems to mean that at the same time, God is warning us the hostility of the world, but also that he loves the world. He loves it enough to send his son to die. So I think we, too, also need to hold this intention. Hold this intention that the world can be a dangerous place for Christians to live. But at the same time, we need to love the world the same way that Jesus loves the world. So the first enemy is the devil. The second enemy is the world. The third enemy is ourselves. And this enemy may be the hardest one for us to resist. Because I think it's the hardest to identify. It's so much easier often to, uh, to point to the evil that exists out there. And ignore the evil that exists right in here, in our own hearts. I think, though, we can all relate to the Apostle Paul, who writes in Romans chapter 7, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives in me that's in, that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. 
See, we're so good at deceiving ourselves and justifying our own thoughts and actions. We're just like Paul. In our own hearts, we, we want to do what's right, but we just so often don't. We want to stop giving into temptation, but we just can't stop. We're weak. And we need to acknowledge that we cannot resist evil on our own. So as we pray this prayer, we're asking God for help to save us from the devil, from the world, and from ourselves. God's not the one who tempts us. Rather, it's these three enemies that we need to be concerned about. So again, what are we asking? First, we're asking, or we're saying that God is our Father, and that we have three enemies that tempt us. And second, we're saying to God, God, don't test me beyond what I can handle. And the word here in Matthew 6 that's translated as temptation uh, is the Greek word perismon, which I'm sure you recognized from Eric's prayer earlier. Uh, Probably not, but that's the Greek word. And the Greek word here can be translated as temptation like it is uh, here in Matthew 6, but it can also mean trial or testing. It's the same word that James uses in James 1 verse 2 where he writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. And sisters, whenever you face temptations or trials or a testing of any kind. So the question I ask immediately of myself is, wait a second, if James is telling us to consider it pure joy when we face these trials, then why is Jesus telling us to pray that God won't lead us to be tested by these trials? And I think the answer is because they're both looking from a little different perspective here. I think James is looking at the positive outcomes of, a, of what happens when we go through a test. But Jesus is warning about the potential danger that exists when we take on a test that we are not ready for. I like to think of it this way. James kind of has this picture of a, of a loving father that's teaching his five-year-old how to ride a bike. Of course, there's going to be sometimes when he falls off the bike. There's going to be some bruises and a scraped knee probably along the way. But in the end, he's going to be able to ride a bike. This is a test that a five-year-old can handle. And this test will help that five-year-old grow into maturity. This is a test that the five-year-old can face with pure joy. It might hurt along the way, but we know it's going to make him better. However, I think the problem is the enemy comes in, and he starts to whisper to the five-year-old and says, Hey, now that you've learned how to ride a bike, I bet you can ride a Harley Davidson. But the father knows best, right? The father would not allow his five-year-old on the, on the Harley Davidson because that's a test he's not ready to handle. The father knows best. So this word that we've been talking about, temptation or testing or trial, it's also the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says here, there's no temptation or test that's overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. So this is what we say when we pray this prayer. God, don't lead us to a test that we can't handle or that we're not ready for. Don't let evil overcome us. We need your help. So again, what are we asking in this prayer? We're asking 
that God make us aware of our enemies who are trying to destroy us and keep us from facing a test that we can't handle. I love how the theologian Dale Bruner says it this way. He prays, Dear Father, please lead us in such a way that we will be able to resist the temptations that both consciously and unconsciously surround us. Please constantly swoop down and rescue us from all the wiles of the evil one and all his evil works. And I love how it ends here. We need your help. So why do we need to pray this? The first reason I'd like to suggest of why we should pray this might sound kind of obvious to you. We need to pray this because Jesus did and he taught us to. Now, not only did Jesus pray this prayer here in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, but he also prayed this prayer when he was agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he would be crucified. Up to this point in Jesus' life, he'd faced every test without failing, and he'd resist every temptation without falling, and yet darkness and evil were about to overtake him. So he prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Don't let me face this test, for it will overcome me. And then he added another line from the Lord's Prayer. He said, and yet not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus understood the great power of evil, and he prayed that he would not be overcome by this great evil. But he knew that if he didn't face it, we would have to. N.T. Wright, who's another great theologian, he says that Jesus would be the one who was led to the testing, and he would not be delivered from it. Now this vocation is unique to Jesus. Where he goes, the rest of us cannot follow. The rest of us are therefore commanded to pray that we may be delivered from the power of evil. And we can pray that prayer with confidence precisely because Jesus has met that power and has defeated it once and for all. So the second reason here I'd like to suggest of why we need to pray this prayer is because the power of evil is very real. It's so easy to see, it, to see it around us, especially if you've turned on the news at all this last week. I mean, the Ebola virus is killing people in West Africa. People are using bombs and guns and swords to kill each other in the Middle East. There's extreme political unrest in Russia and the Ukraine and many other nations. And here in our own backyard, 12-year-olds murder 9-year-olds on playgrounds. And the same evil that exists out there exists in our own hearts as well. Evil is very, very real. And for those of us that live here in suburban Grand Rapids, it's easy sometimes to think that, yeah, there's, there's problems in the world, but if we just work a little harder and, and try a little harder, then everything's going to be okay. Again, N.T. Wright says that this way of thinking is just about as silly as, as being in a house that's completely on fire and saying, huh, it's getting a little warm in here. Well, if we just take our outer coat off and drink a glass of ice water, we'll be okay. We need way more than ice water because the fire is burning the house down. Friends, evil is very, very real and very powerful. But the good news is that Jesus' victory over evil is just as real and even more powerful. So why do we pray this prayer? Because Jesus did. He taught us to. 
and because the power of evil is very real, and because Jesus gives us the power to overcome evil. But the question is how? How do we overcome evil? Well, as we close, I want to suggest three ways that we can overcome evil, and they're coming from Matthew chapter 3. And this is the story of Jesus' baptism. It takes place at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He hasn't even called any of his disciples yet to follow him. But he's about to face one of the biggest and toughest challenges of his life. Because immediately after he will be baptized, he will be led to the desert, where he will face three temptations from the devil himself. Let's look at this in Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you? And you come to me? But Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So in this story, we see Jesus prepared in three different ways to face the temptations of the devil. First off, he's baptized. And we're baptized too. He was marked as one who belonged to God through the waters of baptism. Our own baptisms signify for us that we are marked by God. We belong to him. We are united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. We go down in the waters of baptism, die to our sinful nature, and then are raised to new life. Baptism is not just a promise that was made to us when we were infants or when we were younger. But it's a reality that we live into now. Martin Luther, who's one of the most well-known reformers uh, from back in the Reformation, he was working on a significant project. He was translating the Bible from the, the original language of Greek into the, the common language that the people spoke that day so that the people could actually read their Bibles. And as he was working on this project, he sometimes would just be overcome with doubt or with guilt or with sorrow. And he understood this to be the enemy himself attacking him and discouraging him from the work of translating the Bible. When these attacks would happen, Martin Luther would take his jar of ink and he'd throw it against the wall. And he'd declare loudly, I am baptized. Notice he didn't say, I was baptized. It's not something that happened a long ago, but I am baptized. Because in our baptism, God gives us power to overcome the enemy. The second thing Jesus gets here, Jesus knew that he was the beloved one of God. The heavens opened and God's voice spoke, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. When we begin to believe that we are God's beloved, I believe there is no force in hell that can stop us. When we take hold of our identity as sons and daughters of the King, then the enemy has no power over us. And third, Jesus was boldly sent 
by the Spirit, boldly led by the Spirit, into the desert to be tempted by Satan himself. The same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in each and every one of us. The question is, can you hear what he is saying? Just slow down, open your ears, and listen. Because when we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as Jesus followed the leading, then we can face the devil himself. And we know that God will rescue us from evil. In fact, because of the resurrection, I believe he already has. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We thank you that you are our loving Father and that we are your beloved children. Rescue us from our enemies and don't test us beyond what we can handle. Don't let us be overcome by evil, but help us to overcome evil through the power of your Spirit who lives in each and every one of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you please stand together? I want to again invite you, if you...